pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplication of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as many of you are aware, the house we live in is an old house. It's uh, 119 years old. It was built in 1900. Makes it easy for me to figure out how old it is. So, it's, and out front on the street, there are these great big oak trees. And this past, this past uh, fall, seemed they, they seemed more prolific than others, but they dropped lots of acorns. And those acorns will drop in the flower beds, they'll drop in the gutter. And, uh, and when it comes time to clean stuff up the next spring, um, I'll pull what are now the beginnings of oak trees out of the flower garden. So what's, what started as just acorns dropping, just like the leaves, um, you know, they, they will turn into um, the mighty oaks. And it's, it's kind of amazing to think when I, when I see those little things sprouting up, to look at the real oak tree out here and think that, that the beginning of that was the acorn, and now it's this mighty, large oak tree, standing you know, old and strong right there on the, right on the street. Well, in this passage today, Luke essentially takes what is an acorn in the Old Testament uh, of God's glory. Now, to, to call God's glory an acorn or compare it to an acorn is probably, uh, you know, heretical anyway. But, but as, as, as grand as that is in the Old Testament, he brings God's glory to a magnificent, like an oak, in the New Testament in this scene on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's what we're going to look at today. And, I, and this lesson illustrates to us a right response to the glory of God revealed in his chosen one, the Christ. So to begin with, we're going to look at uh, the glory of Christ revealed. Verse 28 says, 28 and 29, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Well, this revelation of God in this glory, uh, like a glory cloud or the shining white or the kind of a fiery symbol, is not new because in the Old Testament we see, um, we see examples of that. see plenty of examples of that. First, God made himself known in that burning bush, in the, in the, in the form of a fire, in that bush that was not consumed, though it was on fire. And Moses was to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground as he uh, talked with the Lord. Then uh, he called Moses during, during that time to lead his people, God's people, out of Egypt. So with Moses' leading and God leading the, the people and Moses, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in order to illuminate the way and show them where to go. God's glory is, uh, was di- being displayed as a consuming fire or through this brightness of light. So in order for a cloud of, a, a pillar of cloud, this brightness of light, it would have to be mighty bright if it's going to show you where to go throughout the day. And the, the image that it, that these, um, words illustrate is something that's this holy other. So it's, it's not like us. 
you wouldn't have to have this explained to you. If we see, if we had seen it, we would know he's the holy other. He's he's not like us. He's he's different than anything we have ever seen. This uh, God's glory manifested in this Shekinah glory. This this uh, cloud. This adds to his mystery throughout the Old Testament. Moses would go to the tent of meeting to meet with God, and and the uh, pillar of cloud would rest at the entrance of the tent. At one of these meetings, Moses said to um, God, he said, I want to see you. I want to, I want to see you reveal your glory. And with that, it's kind of an interesting time where he sort of negotiates with him and he, he allows him to see a glimpse of him as he, he puts Moses in the crevice of the rock. And then as the Lord passes by, Essentially, Moses is able to see, some translations will say his backside, or afterglow as the Lord passed by. So there's this, and in, and in, and in uh, the conversations with the Lord in that presence, Moses' face shined from that reflecting God's glory. And as he re-entered with the people, that freaked them out, and he had to wear that veil over his face in order for him to be approachable to the people. So... Then, in Exodus 40, um, the tabernacle is built. And as the tabernacle is built, um, this glory cloud comes and fills the tabernacle. So much so that that Moses was not able to enter. And then, out of that glory cloud that filled the whole tabernacle, it comes to rest in, in a concentrated form in that Holy of Holies, where Aaron, the first priest would go and uh, only once a year and sling with the blood to purify the area. So um, then time goes by and there's finally the temple is constructed. In Second Chronicles 7, it says that the uh, glory of the Lord filled the temple once the temple was uh, constructed, once it was complete. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and when the people saw this, they fell and bowed down to, to honor and worship him. And it's, and it's one of these things where you just don't need instruction as to how to operate in the presence of the Lord. They automatically bowed down. Solomon, Solomon was utterly amazed at his presence of the Lord. And he said, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I will build, that I have built. Now I think it's interesting that Solomon even understood that God's presence was too much for the heavens to hold. He certainly knew it was too much for this house that he built for, the, for it to hold. And so uh, he's, he's standing in amazement that the Lord would even dwell there at all. Well, and so, so they come from that. Those are, the, those are the glory days of the glory of the Lord. And then as time goes on, Ezekiel uh, talks about... Um, the apostasy of Israel. So Israel turns their backs on God. They worship idols. And then the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And um, Ezekiel gives a very detailed description of how the Lord left, the glory of the Lord left the temple and, and where it rested and how it finally went off. Um, in 11.23, he talks about... Um, this glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And this, the, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. 
So, uh, which heaviness, weightiness, there's this significance of what's going on with the glory of the Lord. Well, then, in order to make it no glory, uh, you put, put a prefix on kabod, and you come up with Ichabod. So, Ichabod is, is the description of no glory. So, the temple now sits without the presence of God in it at this point. So the glory of the Lord leaves because of Israel's apostasy, and essentially, you could imagine, Ichabod written above the door. Well, I think that this is, I, I think what's interesting is in our world today, as churches continue to move in the ways of the world and leave the historical faith, I believe they should have, they should heed the warning that is given to us in Scripture that uh, if we're not careful, as people leave the historic faith, we in our time could find Ichabod written above the door as the glory of the Lord leaves and the presence of the Spirit it no longer dwells in the church because of apostasy, because of people leaving the faith. Well, here we are hundreds of years after the absence of the glory of the Lord. So it's not been recorded. We don't, nobody's seen the glory cloud. Nobody's seen this presence. The, the last witness to the glory of the Lord was uh, in Ezekiel's writing as the glory of the Lord was leaving the temple. Devastating times. And then we are here at this scene. And the glory of the Lord has now appeared in Jesus. And it, and it talks about his clothes became dazzling white. So this, and we, we've talked about multiple times as, our, as we're studying Luke, this veiled disclosure. So Jesus heals somebody and he says, now don't tell anybody about that. And of course, the people go and tell everybody. But there's something where, was he, was he a good teacher? Yes. Was he a good man? Yes. Was he a good prophet? Yes. But he's more than that. But how much do I want to show how much more of that than I am at what time? And, and you'll remember, uh, for instance, at the wedding of Cana and his mother's telling him, you know, go ahead and Let's produce some more wine, why not? And he says, well, it is not my time. There was, he had in mind a way to reveal himself, and it's been very slow. So in our last scene that we talked about was Peter recognizing him as the Christ, and he charged them not to tell everybody. Here in this scene, there's this divinity showing through, so much so that his clothes now are lit up. So the, the true nature of who Jesus is, that divine nature of Jesus becoming unveiled now is lighting up his clothes it had to be an awesome experience to see this happening here and then as he's sitting there with these uh, other two men and then you have peter james john his the glory of the lord's being reflected off the faces of those disciples i think this is kind of a neat thing that's going on here so they are experiencing what Moses experienced. Their faces are being lit up. Jesus is getting to see this and seeing his, his glory being reflected from the disciples. Now, it was that last scene that we talked about that uh, Jesus said, after he was identified, he said, well, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be put to death. And I'm going to be uh, raised to life after three days. And, of course, how do you take that? That's very difficult and challenging to hear. And these disciples are still trying to be reconciled with that news. So the next thing we see is the exodus of Christ is corroborated. 
So in verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, both Moses and Elijah, uh, because there's, there's, why not, why not, you know, Daniel and somebody else? I mean, there, there could have been, why not Abraham? There could have been lots of people from the past who could have been sitting on this mountain as far as, you know, we're concerned as we're reading. It is interesting that Moses and Elijah both talked with God on the, on the Mount uh, Sinai. They have both, uh, both of them had witnessed God's glory before. And the end of life for both of them was unique as well. Elijah was taken up in that chariot of fire and therefore didn't die. And then Moses was buried in a grave only known to God. Both were expected to return at the end of the age. And Moses was the representative because of, of the law. So he's, he's the great lawgiver. Um, you got Elijah who was the great prophet. So the law and the prophets are, are represented. But what were they talking about? I find this just rather interesting. What are they talking about? It says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the prophets corroborated the eternal plan of God for Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. They were talking about Jesus' exodus, that new exodus, which Moses' exodus, the freeing the, the slavery, the, the slaves from Egypt, that's what this pointed to. That's a huge story, uh, as, and, and we've, we've gone through that. There's, there are many details and there are many pointers to the gospel throughout that entire story. That's a huge story to be also a major pointer. So you got your acorn, you got your oak tree. The, the acorn is the Moses leading his people out of slavery from Egypt, the oak tree becomes Jesus' exodus that he's leading, where he leads his captives of slavery out of sin. Beautiful picture. This, this thing of where he leads them out of sin, he is able then to suffer to pay for our sin, but then he's also able to be uh, raised to life, and he's able then to give us his righteousness. So this great exchange that happens in the gospel. Now, whether the inner circle that Peter, James, and John caught all of this, I don't, I'm, I, you know, I don't know. They were drowsy, so they were kind of asleep. They're sort of waking up, and obviously they're a bit ignorant. Um, it, I mean, this, this, this passage kind of tells us that much. But later in Second uh, Peter, Peter did write in Second uh, Peter 1, 16, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So there's something more there. And we'll, and we'll come back to that in just, just a bit. So Jesus fulfilled the law, as Moses represented. Uh, he fulfilled the messianic prophecies, which were given to the prophets as well. And then he later explains that all the law and the prophets uh, what all they had to say about him. On the, on, the, on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other disciple, he enters, their, he enters their pain and their suffering, and then he explains to them, he, he tells them how slow you are to know and pay attention. Then he explains from the law and the prophets all it said about him. Well, this Shekinah glory of God has returned. The prophets 
had spoken, and now next, the Lord speaks. So, the Christ of God is to be listened to. Verse 33, it says, And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, can you imagine in this scene, and you have the glorified Jesus, and you have that reflection off the disciples' faces, and then you have Peter responding. Now, Peter's always the first to respond. I think it's funny because many of his responses are like, yes, I would say that. And this one, I can just imagine Jesus sort of patting Peter on the head or the shoulder and saying, oh, Peter. And then then just kind of going on. Um, Perhaps Peter understood more than I would give him credit for, and he understood the concept of the shelters, perhaps was so that he could contain this glorious scene and preserve it. Perhaps. Perhaps because of his conditioning and who he was, where he was from, and the things that they practiced in their culture, he was thinking of let's build them shelters because this would be a very hospitable thing to do. Maybe it was the kindest thing that he could think to say at the time. It's a, it, it, I don't know what all... Um, what I don't know what all he was thinking. It is difficult to tell, but it, in the presence of this great, uh, these these great folks, like Mo- Moses had been dead for over fourteen hundred years at this point. Uh, Elijah had been dead for like nine hundred, and now they're sitting in front of you. And somehow he knew who they were, and Jesus is glorified. What would you say? I saw. Uh, I have a, I have a Johnny Cash illustration for you. Um, he was honored with the Kennedy Center of Honors in 1996, which, you know, is a huge deal. And so I saw him do an interview with Jay Leno, um, and, and he had been to the White House that earlier that day. They had had a meal together and all this stuff. But during the presentation of the awards, there's some time out uh, in the backstage of, uh, with the president. And uh, so Jay said, well, did you, did you talk with the president? And he said, well, I did. He said, what do you do to make small talk with the president? He said, and I'm shuffling my feet, and I'm looking down, and I said, what size shoes you wear? And it was President Clinton at the time. President Clinton said, size 12. John said, hmm, I wear 13D. And the president's response was, well, you got me beat. Now, that was the end of the conversation, and it was funny to hear Johnny talking about being in the presence of greatness and being stuck for words and not knowing what to say. Well, I think, I think this was uh, Peter's moment here. So, you know, there are times to speak... And there are times to listen. Verse 35 says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in these days anything of what they had seen. So the father speaks in the midst of this cloud that's covering them. The cloud comes. The Father speaks, the earth trembles. Now, he's not speaking to Jesus. He's not speaking to Moses and and Elijah. He's speaking so that what he's saying can be heard and received by these doubting disciples to confirm any doubts, to, to relieve them, to remove them. Now, there was no doubt about the identity of Jesus among these three. These are almost the same words that the Father uses 
over the Son at Jesus' baptism. But there's an addition. And it's this command that says, listen to him. The law and the prophets were partial expressions of God's heart. And we we heard that in the reading of Hebrews 1, which says, you know, in, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Because Jesus is the full revelation of God, to which both the law and the prophets were pointing. His words have more authority than both. He is the fulfillment of both of them. The Old Testament's focus is Jesus. Jesus is the focus of history. Jesus is the focus of eternity future. Jesus is absolutely everything. I think, the, I think this, for us, it simply is asking, do you listen? Meaning, do you hear? Do you obey Jesus' words? Do, do you have in you a desire, an urgency, that those whom you love, your children, your, uh, your friends, your parents, whatever it is you have that's related to you, or your friends and co-workers, do you, do you have an urgency in you where you desire that they listen, they hear, they receive, they obey Jesus' words. If if uh, if you can find it, let's let's flip to Second Peter. Second Peter one. I think this is a, it's a beautiful little passage. If we read from Second Peter one sixteen uh, through twenty one, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power of power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from any, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful passage of Peter remembering his experience and then placing confidence in Jesus' words, which is the Scripture. I find this to be very encouraging. In a day where you know, everybody's opinions are equally valid, and sometimes the way to go is so that you go the way of the least resistance. So those who don't, those who uh, will bark the least, that's the direction we tend to go. Peter is saying, here's something solid for you. You can hold on to the scriptures. And these scriptures are written for your benefit because as they, and, and, and we're also in a crazy time where, like all of my life, you flip on a TV and you find somebody who claims they're a prophet and they, and they do, they do. Have proph- they prophesy in their own uh, strength, out of their own interpretation. What this is saying is the reason we have scriptures is because prophets of old 
had written these things because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They didn't write of their own accord. They wrote what God wanted us to have. And therefore, we can have confidence as Peter, James, and John witnessed this glory of the Lord in Christ. We can have that same kind of confidence because we have the revealed scriptures. We have the revealed will of God in the scriptures. And so we can rest on them. He says you would do well to pay attention to. He's saying the same thing. Listen to him. Listen. God says, listen to him. Listen to my son. Listen to his words. And again, it's not just the listen. We listen. We hear. We understand. We put him into action. We obey. In a culminating uh, story of this glory of God being manifested in lights, near the end of Jesus' ministry, he was in the uh, city of Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And at the end of the feast, there was a lighting of the temple, a celebration that uh, evidently like in a courtyard, so that there were these um, four massive candelabras there. And by each one, there would have been a ladder. And as the evening came, a young, healthy priest would climb the ladder and light these wicks, which um, I read the volume of uh, oil these things would hold, and it was, it was huge. I don't remember what it was. But the, the, then this light would light up. And the, the idea, there was dancing. There was, this was a big celebration. And they were celebrating in this Feast of the Tabernacles, they were celebrating that pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, how God led them by light. And so what they're doing is celebrating this light. And so they would set these things on fire. It would light up the temple. And because of the blaze it had, it would light up much of Jerusalem. And then the next day came. The, the fires on these torches are out. Jesus enters the same space. He raises his voice above the crowd and he says, I am the light of the world. He is saying, in essence, the glory cloud that you're celebrating that led you. It was me. That glory cloud that came and rested on the tabernacle. It was me. That glory cloud that filled the temple. It was me. That glory cloud that left the temple. That was me. But here I am to lead you. I am the light of the world. And folks, it, it, we're, if we're not in the light, we're in the dark. If we're, if we're in darkness, we are, we are going to go astray. To be in the light is to be in Jesus. A beautiful, a beautiful picture as he illustrates and then like hammers down, I am the light of the world. Anyone who has, uh, John eight twelve says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Since Jesus is the Shekinah glory. We either walk in the light with Christ or we walk in darkness. Now, if you're not in the light, there is no life in you. He is our only hope. Of all the competing voices of the world, are you listening to Jesus? Do you have his words as the priority for who you listen to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.